Namo tassa bhagavato arahato summa sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato summa sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato summa sambuddhassa Buddhang tamang sanghang namasami This next talk, uh, chapter 19, is called Happiness, Unhappiness, and Nibbana. And this is um, also from that little uh, booklet called Now is the Knowing. And uh, again, these are from talks that Lumpur gave in the early 80s. Uh, I think it was um, December of 82 at uh, Wat Pananachat. Uh, and um, so that uh, you might have seen this before in, in that particular format. Um, so this is one of the ones that, that has been put into print before. The goal of Buddhist meditation is Nibbāna. We incline towards the peace of Nibbāna and away from the complexities of the sense realm. The endless cycles of, ha- uh, the endless cycles of habit. Nibbāna is a goal that can be realized in this lifetime. We don't have to wait until we die to know if it's real. The senses in the sense world are the realm of birth and death. Take sight, for for instance. It's dependent on so many factors, whether it's day or night, whether or not the eyes are healthy, and so on. Yet we become very attached to the colors, shapes, and forms that we perceive with the eyes, and we identify with them. Then there are the ears and sound. When we hear pleasant sounds, we seek to hold on to them. And when we hear unpleasant sounds, we try to turn away. With smells, we seek the pleasure of fragrances and pleasant odors, and we try to avoid unpleasant ones. With flavors, we seek delicious tastes and try to avoid bad ones. And touch. How much of our life is spent trying to escape from physical discomfort and pain, and seeking the delight of physical sensation? Finally, there is thought, the discriminatory consciousness, it can give us a lot of pleasure or a lot of misery. These are the senses, the sense world. It is the compounded world of birth and death. Its very nature is dukkha. It is imperfect and unsatisfying. You'll never find perfect happiness, contentment or peace in the sense world. It'll always bring despair and death. The sense world is unsatisfactory, and so we only suffer from it. The sense world is unsatisfactory, and so we only suffer from it when we expect it to satisfy us. We suffer when we expect more from it than it can possibly give. Things like permanent security and happiness, permanent love and safety, hoping that our life will only be one of pleasure and have no pain in it. If only I could get rid of sickness and disease and conquer old age. I remember that some years ago in the States, people hoped that modern science would be able to rid and would be able to get rid of all illnesses. They'd say, all mental illnesses are due to chemical imbalances. If we can just find the right chemical combinations and inject them into the body, schizophrenia will disappear. There would be no more headaches or backaches. 
It would gradually replace all our internal organs with nice plastic ones. I even read an article in an Australian medical journal about how they hoped to conquer old age. As the world's population kept increasing, we'd keep having more and more children and nobody would ever grow old and die. Just think what a mess that would be. The sense world is unsatisfactory, and that's the way it's supposed to be. When we attach to it, it takes us to despair, because attachment means that we want it to be satisfactory. We want it to satisfy us, to make us content, happy and secure. But just notice the nature of happiness. How long can you stay happy? What is happiness? You may think it's how you feel when you get what you want. Someone says something that you like to hear and you feel happy. Someone does something that you approve of and you feel happy. The sun shines and you feel happy. Someone makes nice food and serves it to you and you're happy. But how long can you stay happy? Do we always have to depend on the sun shining? In England, the weather is very changeable. Happiness about the sun shining in England is obviously very impermanent and unsatisfactory. Unhappiness is not getting what we want. Wanting it to be sunny when it's cold, wet and rainy. People doing things that we don't approve of. Having food that isn't delicious and so on. Life becomes boring and tedious when we're unhappy with it. So, happiness and unhappiness are very dependent on getting what we want or what we don't want. But happiness is the goal of most people's lives. The American Constitution speaks of the right to, quote, the pursuit of happiness, unquote. Getting what we want, what we think we deserve, becomes our goal in life. But happiness always leads to unhappiness, because it's impermanent. How long can you really be happy? Trying to arrange, control and manipulate conditions so as always to get what we want, always hear what we want to hear, always see what we want to see, and never have it to experience unhappiness or despair, is a hopeless task. It's impossible. We feel happy when we're healthy, but our human bodies are subject to rapid changes, and we can lose our health very quickly. Then we feel terribly unhappy at being sick, at losing the pleasure of feeling energetic and vigorous. Happiness is unsatisfactory. It's dukkha. It's not something to depend on or make the goal of life. Happiness will always be disappointing because it lasts so briefly and then is succeeded by unhappiness. It's always dependent on so many other things. Thus the goal for the Buddhist is not happiness because he realized that happiness is unsatisfactory. The goal lies away from the sense world. It's not rejection of the sense world, but understanding it, understanding it so well that we no longer seek it as an end in itself and no longer expect it to satisfy us. We no longer demand that the sense consciousness should be anything other than an existing condition which we can use skillfully according to time and place. We no longer attach to it or demand that sense contact should always be pleasant, or feel despair and sorrow when it's unpleasant. Nibbana isn't a state of blankness, a trance where you're totally wiped out. It's not nothingness or annihilation. It's like a space. It's going into the space of your mind where you no longer attach, where you're no longer deluded by the appearance of things. You no longer demand anything from the sense world. You just recognize it as it arises and passes away.
Being born in the human condition means that we must inevitably experience old age, sickness and death. One time a young woman came to our monastery in England with her baby, who had been badly ill for about a week, with a horrible racking cough. The mother looked totally depressed and miserable. As she sat in the reception room holding the baby, it turned red in the face and started screaming and coughing horribly. The woman said, Oh, Venerable Somato, why does he have to suffer like this? He's never hurt anybody. He's never done anything wrong. Why? What did he do in some previous life to have to suffer like this? But he was suffering because he was born. If he hadn't been born, he wouldn't have to, had to suffer. When we're born, we have to expect these things. Having a human body means that we have to experience sickness, pain, old age and death. This is an important reflection. We can speculate that maybe in a previous life the baby liked to choke cats and dogs or something like that and has to pay for it in this life, but that's mere speculation and it doesn't really help. What we can know is that his suffering is the karmic result of being born. Each one of us must inevitably experience sickness and pain, hunger, thirst, the aging process of our bodies, and death. That's the law of karma. What begins must end. What is born must die. What comes together must separate. We're not pessimistic about the way things are, but we observe, so we don't expect life to be other than it is. Then we can cope with life, endure it when it's difficult, and delight in it when it's delightful. If we understand life, we can enjoy it without being its helpless victims. How much misery there is in human existence because we expect life to be other than what it is. We have romantic ideas that will meet the right person, fall in love and live happily ever after, never fight, have a wonderful relationship. But what about death? You may think, well, maybe we'll die at the same time. But that's just hope. And then there's despair when your loved one dies before you do, or runs away with the dustman or the travelling salesman. You can learn a lot from small children because they don't disguise their feelings. They just express what they feel in the moment. When they're miserable, they start crying. And when they're happy, they laugh. Some time ago, I went with a layman to his home. When we arrived, his young daughter was very happy to see him. Then he said to her, I have to take Venerable Somato to Sussex University to give a talk. As we walked out of the door, the little girl turned red in the face and began screaming in anguish. So her father said, It's all right. I'll be back in an hour. But she wasn't old enough to understand, I'll be back in an hour. The immediacy of separation from the loved meant immediate anguish. Notice how often in our life there is that sorrow at having to separate from something that we like, someone we love, from having to leave a place where we really like to be. When you're really mindful, you can see the not wanting to separate, the sorrow. As adults, we can let go of the sorrow immediately if we know we can come back again but it's still there. For several months I travelled around the world, arriving at airports where somebody always met me with Hello! And then a few days later it was Goodbye! And there was always the asking Come back! And I'd say Yes, I'll come back. And so I've committed myself to do the same thing again. We can't say Goodbye forever to someone that we like. We say I'll see you again. I'll phone you up. I'll write to you. Or Until the next time we meet. We have all these phrases to cover over the sense of sorrow and separation. 
In meditation, we just note, observe what sorrow really is. We don't say that we shouldn't feel sorrow when we separate from someone that we love. It's natural to feel that way. But as meditators, we begin to witness sorrow so that we understand it. Rather than trying to suppress, rather than trying to suppress it, pretending it's something more than it is, or just neglecting it. In England, people tend to suppress sorrow when somebody dies. They try not to cry or be emotional. They don't want to make a scene. They keep a stiff upper lip. Then when they start meditating, they can find themselves suddenly crying over the death of someone who died 15 years before. They didn't cry at the time, so they end up doing it 15 years later. When someone dies, we don't want to admit our sorrow or make a scene, because we think that if we cry, we're weak, or it's embarrassing to others. So we tend to suppress and hold things back, not recognizing the nature of things as they really are, not recognizing our human predicament and learning from it. In meditation, we allow the mind to open up and let the things that have been suppressed and repressed become conscious, because when things become conscious, they have a way of ceasing rather than just being repressed again. We allow things to take their course to cessation. We allow things to go away rather than just pushing them away. Often we push certain things away from us, refusing to accept or recognize them. If we feel upset or annoyed with anyone, if we're bored or, or unpleasant feelings arise, we look at beautiful flowers or the sky or read a book, watch TV, do something. We're never bored fully consciously, fully angry. We don't recognize our despair or disappointment because we can always run off to something else. We can always go to the refrigerator, eat cakes and sweets, listen to the stereo. It's so easy to absorb into music, away from boredom and despair, into something that is exciting, interesting, calming or beautiful. Look at how dependent we are on watching TV and reading. There are so many books now that they'll have to be burnt. There are useless books everywhere, produced by writers who have nothing worth saying. Today's not-so-pleasant film stars write their autobiographies and make a lot of money. And there are the gossip columns. People get away from the boredom of their own existence, their discontent with it, its tediousness, by reading gossip about movie stars and celebrities. We've never really accepted boredom as a conscious state. As soon as it comes into the mind, we start looking for something interesting, something pleasant. But in meditation, we allow boredom to be. We allow ourselves to be fully, consciously bored, utterly depressed, fed up, jealous, angry, disgusted. We begin to accept into consciousness all the nasty, unpleasant experiences of life that we've suppressed from consciousness and never really looked at, never really accepted. Not as personality problems anymore, but just out of compassion. Out of kindness and wisdom, we allow them to take their natural course to cessation, rather than just keeping them going around in the same old cycles of habit. If we have no way of letting things take their natural course, we're always controlling, always causing some dreary habit of mind. When we're jaded and depressed, we're unable to appreciate the beauty of things because we never really see them as they truly are. I remember an experience I had in my first year of meditation in Thailand. I spent most of that year by myself in a little hut, and the first few months were really terrible. All kinds of things kept coming up in my mind. Obsessions, fears, terror and hatred. 
I'd never felt so much hatred. I never thought of myself as someone who hated people, but during those first few months of meditation, it seemed I hated everybody. I couldn't think of anything nice about anyone. There was so much aversion coming up into consciousness. Then one afternoon, I started having this strange vision. I thought I was going crazy, actually. I saw people walking off my brain. I saw my mother just walk out of my brain and into emptiness, disappear into space. Then my father and my sister followed. I actually saw these visions walking out of my head. I thought, I'm crazy. I've gone nuts. But it wasn't an unpleasant experience. The next morning, when I woke from sleep and looked around, I felt that everything I saw was beautiful. Everything. Even the most unbeautiful detail was beautiful. I was in a state of awe. The hut itself was a crude structure, not beautiful by anyone's standards, but it looked to me like a palace. The scrubby-looking trees outside looked like the most beautiful forest. Sunbeams were streaming through the window onto a plastic dish, and the plastic dish looked beautiful. That sense of beauty stayed with me for about a week, and then, reflecting on it, I suddenly realized that this is the way things really are when the mind is clear. Up to that time, I'd been looking through a dirty window, and over the years I'd become so used to the scum and dirt on the window that I didn't realize it was dirty. I'd accepted the way it was. When we become used to looking through a dirty window, everything seems grey, grimy and ugly. Meditation is a way of cleaning the window, purifying the mind and allowing things to come up into consciousness and letting them go. Then with the wisdom faculty, the Buddha wisdom, we observe how things really are. This is not just attaching to beauty, to purity of mind, but actually understanding. It's wisely reflecting on the way nature operates so that we are no longer deluded into living habitually. Birth means old age, sickness and death. But that's to do with your body. It's not you. Your human body is not really yours. No matter what your particular appearance might be, whether you are healthy or sickly, beautiful or not beautiful, black or white, or whatever, it's all not self. This is what we mean by anatta. Human bodies belong to nature and follow the laws of nature. They are born, they grow up, they age and they die. We may understand that rationally, but emotionally there's a very strong attachment to the body. In meditation we begin to see this attachment. We don't take the position that we shouldn't be attached, saying, the problem with me is that I'm attached to my body and I shouldn't be. It's bad, isn't it? If I was a wise person, I wouldn't be attached to it. That's starting from an ideal. It's like trying to start climbing a tree from the top, saying, I should be at the top of the tree. I shouldn't be down here. But much as we like to think that we're at the top, we have to accept humbly that we aren't. To begin with, we have to be at the trunk of the tree where the roots are, looking at the most coarse and ordinary things before we can start identifying with anything at the top of the tree. This is the way of wise reflection. The practice is not one of purifying the mind and then attaching to purity. It's not just trying to refine consciousness so that we can induce high states of concentration whenever we feel like it. Because even the most refined states of sensory consciousness are unsatisfactory. They're dependent on so many other things. Nibbana is not dependent on any other condition. 
Conditions of any quality, be they ugly, nasty, beautiful, refined or whatever, arise and pass away, but they don't interfere with Nibbāna, with the peace of the mind. We don't incline away from the sense world through aversion, because if we try to annihilate the senses, that too becomes a habit that we blindly acquire, trying to get rid of what we don't like. That's why we have to be very patient. This lifetime as a human being is a lifetime of meditation. See the span of meditation as the rest of your life, rather than just a ten-day retreat. You may think, I meditated on retreat for ten days. I thought I was enlightened, but when I got home, I somehow didn't feel enlightened anymore. I'd like to go back and do a longer retreat where I can feel more enlightened than I did last time. It would be nice to have a higher state of consciousness. In fact, the more refined your experience on retreat, the more coarse your daily life must seem. You have highs, but when you go back to the mundane daily routines of life in the city, it's even worse than before. After going so high, the ordinariness of life seems much more ordinary, gross and unpleasant. The way to insight wisdom is not having preferences for refinement over coarseness, but recognizing that both refined and coarse consciousness are impermanent conditions. But they are unsatisfactory. Their nature will never satisfy us. And they are anatta, they are not what we are, not ours. Thus the Buddha's teaching is very simple. What could be simpler than, what is born must die? It is not some great new philosophical discovery. Even illiterate tribal people know that. You don't have to study in university to know it. When we are young we think, I've got so many years left of youth and happiness. If we are beautiful we think, I'm going to be young and beautiful forever. Because it, seems that, because it seems that way. When we're 20 years old, having a good time, life is wonderful. And if somebody says, you're going to die someday, we may think, what a depressing person. Let's not invite him to our house again. We don't want to think about death. We want to think about how wonderful life is, how much pleasure we can get out of it. But as meditators, we reflect on growing old and dying. This is not being morbid, sick or depressing. It's considering the whole cycle of existence. And when we know that cycle, we're more careful about how we live. People do horrible things because they don't wisely reflect on and consider that they will die. They just follow their passions and feelings of the moment, trying to obtain pleasure and feeling angry and depressed when life doesn't give them what they want. Reflect on your own life and death and the cycles of nature. Observe what delights and what depresses you. See how we can feel very positive or very negative. Notice how we want to attach to beauty, pleasant feelings or inspiration. It's really nice to feel inspired, isn't it? Buddhism is the greatest religion of them all. Or, when I discovered the Buddha, I was so happy. It's a wonderful discovery. When we become a little doubtful, a little depressed, we read an inspiring book and get high. But remember, being high is an impermanent condition. It's like becoming happy. If you have to keep sustaining it, sorry, you have to keep sustaining it, and after you keep doing something over and over again, you no, you no longer feel happy with it. How many sweets can you eat? First they make you happy, then they make you sick. So, depending on religious inspiration is not enough. If you attach to inspiration, when you become when you become fed up with Buddhism, you go off and find some new thing to inspire you. 
It's like attaching to romance. When it disappears from a relationship, you start looking for someone else to feel romantic about. Years ago in America, I met a woman who'd been married six times, and she was only about 33. I said, you'd think you would have learned after the third or fourth time. Why do you keep getting married? She said, it's the romance. I don't like the other side, but I love the romance. Well, at least she was honest, but not terribly wise. Romance is a condition that leads to disillusionment. Romance, inspiration, excitement, adventure, all these things rise, <coughs> rise up to a peak and then condition their opposites, just as an inhalation conditions an exhalation. Just think of inhaling all the time. It would be like having one romance after another. How long can you inhale? The inhalation conditions the exhalation. Both are necessary. Birth conditions death. Hope conditions despair. And inspiration condition, conditions disillusionment. So when we attach to hope, we're going to feel despair. When we attach to excitement, it'll take us to boredom. When we attach to romance, it'll take us to disillusionment and divorce. When we attach to life, it takes us to death. So recognize that it's the attachment that causes suffering, attaching to conditions and expecting them to be more than what they are. For so many people, so much of, the, of life seems to be waiting and hoping for something to happen, expecting and anticipating some success or pleasure, or maybe worrying and fearing that some painful, unpleasant thing is just lying in wait. You may hope you'll meet somebody that you'll really love or have some great experience, but attaching to hope takes you to despair. By wise reflection, we begin to understand the things that create misery in our lives. We see that we're actually the creators of that misery. Through our ignorance, through not having wisely understood the sensory world and its limitations, we have identified with all that is unsatisfactory and impermanent the things that can only take us to despair and death. No wonder life is so depressing. It's dreary because of the attachment, because we identify and seek ourselves in all that is by nature dukkha, unsatisfactory and imperfect. When we stop doing that, when we let go, that's enlightenment. We're enlightened beings, no longer attached, no longer identified with anything, no longer deluded by the sense world. We understand the sense world, we know how to coexist with it. We know how to use the sensory world for compassionate action, for joyous giving. We no longer demand that it be here to satisfy us, to make us feel secure and safe, or to give us anything, because as soon as we demand that it should satisfy us, it takes us to despair. When we no longer identify with the sense world as me or mine, and see it as anatta, we can enjoy the senses without seeking sense contact or depending on it. We no longer expect conditions to be anything other than what they are, so that when they change, we can patiently and peacefully bear the unpleasant side of existence. We can humbly endure sickness, pain, cold, hunger, failures and criticisms. If we're not attached to the world, we can adapt to change, whatever that change may be, whether it's for the better or the worse. If we're still attached, we can't adapt very well. We're always struggling, resisting, trying to control and manipulate everything, and then feeling frustrated, frightened and depressed of what a delusive, frightening place the world is. 
If you've never really contemplated the world, never taken the time to understand and know it, it becomes a frightening place for you. It becomes like a jungle. You don't know what's behind the next tree or the bush or the cliff. A wild animal, a ferocious man-eating tiger, terrible dragon or a poisonous snake. Nibbana means getting away from the jungle. When we incline towards Nibbana, we move towards peace of mind. Although the conditions of mind may not be peaceful at all, the mind itself is a peaceful place. Here we make a distinction between the mind and the conditions of mind. The conditions of mind can be happy, miserable, elated, depressed, loving or hating, worrying or fear-ridden, doubting or bored. They come and go in the mind, but the mind itself, like the space in this room, just stays as it is. The space in this room has no quality to elate or depress. It is just as it is. To concentrate on the space in the room, we have to withdraw our attention from the things in it. If we concentrate on the things in it, we become happy or unhappy. We say, look at the beautiful Buddha image. Or if we see something we find ugly, we say, oh, what a terrible, disgusting thing. We can spend our time looking at the people in the room, thinking whether we like this person or dislike that person. We can form opinions about people being this way or that way. Remember what they did in the past. Speculate about what they'll do in the future seeing others as possible sources of pain or gratification to ourselves. However, if we withdraw our attention, that doesn't mean that we have to push everyone else out of the room. If we don't concentrate on or absorb into any of the conditions, we have a perspective, because the space in the room has no quality to depress or elate. It can contain us all. All conditions can come and go within it. Moving inwards, we can apply this to the mind. The mind is like space. There's room in it for everything or nothing. It doesn't really matter whether it's filled or has nothing in it, because we always have a perspective once we know the space of the mind, its emptiness. Armies can come and go in the mind, butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through it without our being caught in blind reaction, struggling resistance, control or manipulation. So when we abide in the emptiness of our minds, we move away, not getting rid of things, but no longer absorbing into conditions that exist in the present or creating any new ones. This is our practice of letting go. We let go of our identification with conditions by seeing that they are all impermanent and not self. This is what we mean by vipassana meditation. It's really looking, witnessing, listening, observing that whatever comes must go. Whether it's coarse or refined, good or bad, whatever comes and goes is not what we are. We're not good. We're not bad. We're not male or female, beautiful or ugly. These are changing conditions in nature. They're not self. This is the Buddhist way to enlightenment, going towards Nibbāna, inclining towards the spaciousness or emptiness of mind rather than being born and caught up in the conditions of mind. Now you may ask, if I'm not the conditions of mind, if, not, if I'm not a man or a woman, this or that, then what am I? Do you want me to tell you who you are? Would you believe me if I did? What would you think if I started asking you who I am? It's like trying to see your own eyes. You can't know yourself because you are yourself. You can only know what is not yourself.
And that solves the problem, doesn't it? If you know what is not yourself, there is no question about what you are. If I said, who am I? I'm trying to find myself. And started looking under the shrine, under the carpet, under the curtain. You'd think, Venerable Sumato has really flipped out. He's gone crazy. He's looking for himself. I'm looking for me. Where am I? Is the most stupid question in the world. The problem is not who we are, but our belief and identification with what we are not. That's where the suffering is. That's where we feel misery and depression and despair. It's our identifying with everything that is not ourselves, that is Tukka. When you identify with that, that which is unsatisfactory, it's obvious that you'll be dissatisfied and discontented. So the path of the Buddhist is a letting go rather than a trying to find anything. The problem is blind attachment, blind identification with the appearance of the sensory world. You needn't get rid of it. You needn't, you needn't get rid of the sensory world, but learn from it. Watch it. No longer allow yourselves to be deluded by it. Keep penetrating it with Buddha wisdom. Keep using this Buddha wisdom so that you become more at ease with being wise, rather than making yourself become wise. Just by listening, observing, being awake, being aware, the wisdom will become clear. You'll be using wisdom with regard to your body, thoughts, feelings, memories, emotions, all of those things. You'll see and witness them, allowing them to pass by and let them go. So at this time you have nothing to do except to be wise from one moment to the next. And happiness, happiness and Nibbana. <clears throat> Another lion's roar from uh, uh, from Lumpur Sumedho. Um, so many themes in there that are useful to reflect on. Um, uh, he described at the beginning about how someone um, was coming here with their child who was who was sick and saying, you know, uh, "Why, uh, why should this happen? He's never hurt anybody. How can he be suffering so much?" And um, as you would imagine, this is an extremely uh, common occurrence, uh, and uh, uh, over and over again, people people say that, or people who've had their often had their children die in their um, early childhood or in their twenties, and um, then there's this um, uh, kind of folk belief that uh, is often around. Oh, this person they must have done something dreadful in a past life to um, to bring about that kind of um, uh, misery or difficulty that they there's something you know, wrong that uh, they have this particular illness or that they died when they're only 22 or 27 or um, such like and there's you know quite a number of the families that, that come on a regular basis it's uh, as offering making offerings as a memorial to their their children who died but i always try to give this same advice that uh, that don posamedo gives here of uh, well, they died because they were born rather than because of some kind of past life event or, or uh, what you can be sure is is that that uh, the the condition for birth is is the cause of of death, and that um the, as he says, the rest is speculation, obviously sometimes people are not satisfied with that, and you can feel a sense of <laughs> they want more of a of a label on it, but I feel it's it's far more realistic, far more accurate, and far more helpful to to consider it in that way. That people have this strange assumption that 
once you're born, there's this invisible contract whereby you you expect to be able to to uh, have a, a body that's free from illnesses and to to grow old in a comfortable way and keep all your faculties until you die in your sleep, you know, happy and content uh, when you're 95. And uh, I mean, you don't, if you spell it out like that, it sounds ridiculous. But we do tend to uh, to think that way. Yeah, even when someone, it is amazing, but sometimes even when people are in their 80s and they they start losing their faculties, then the family, oh, it's so it's so unfortunate, you know, he's, <laughs> that uh, you know, he, he can't remember things, or that, uh, oh, you know, why is this happening to my dad? You know, he's, and someone's someone's uh, already you know, aged, and uh, the uh, the life condition is one that. Of course, you know the system is going to break down. It just, just it's not the way nature works that everything holds together in a perfectly integrated way and then just switches off like a a um, a machine with a battery taken out. It's just not not the way that it, it works. But yet we have these these mysterious kind of expectations that we we carry around. So I feel this this uh, comments of from Lumpur there are, are very helpful and and also that. <clears throat> the, you, you find both in the Buddhist tradition, or people out of the uh, uh, more of a Hindu background, or just a sort of New Agey type background, they have this uh, sense of that everything that happens uh, is because of some particular personal action. That whatever we experience is is because of our karma, and um, that even though that that is a folk belief that you find in the Buddhist world, uh, it's not something that's really substantiated by the by the Buddha and the Buddha's teachings. And so I often find myself explaining that that karma, uh, the the action that we take based on our own volition, is only one of of a number of laws of nature that are functioning in any one moment. And and so you have what's called utuni, they call the niyamas or the laws of nature. So you have utuniyama. Uh, which is utu literally means the weather, so utuniyama is like the the laws of physics and chemistry. So uh, I say to people, you know, did you in, did you invent gravity? Were you involved in in deciding on the 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 weight of the electron or the or the you know the force of gravity in the universe? And they, well, no. <laughs> well, but you feel gravity. You feel the pull of the body to the ground. Well, we feel this all the time, but it's not a personal. It's nothing, nothing to do with our personal action or personal choices. But yet we're subject to that. We're affected by that law. We feel our body pulled to the ground. We have a weight. And then the next one is bija niyama. Bija means seeds. This is the laws of biology. So in this instance, the law of biology is that if a, an entity is born, then one day it's going to die. Where it might die young from an illness, or be um, injured, or, or eaten by something else. Uh, <clears throat> it might grow up and get older, um, but in, in the laws of biology, then you, uh, the, the aging and decrepitude is, is part of it. As I like to point out also to people, you, know, you never see um, like pigeons walking around when their wings don't fly anymore. You know, their, their wings don't work. You, don't, you, never, you never find kind of pigeons they're in little sort of homemade wheelchairs or kind of strolling along because their wings don't work, or you know, a blackbird where all the, the, the feathers have fallen out. That doesn't happen, you know. That the, you, they as soon as they start to slow down, they can't fly anymore. They get eaten. They, they get they get taken out by something else that that preys on them. That's the 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 bio, the biological truth. That's the, the the law of the of the animal world. And so uh, our own aging, we feel it a lot more personally when our, our 
eyesight goes, our hearing goes, our mobility goes, our, our, you know, our, our faculties start to fade, our capacity to think disappears. It, it feels very personal in all those close to us, the loved ones, when it happens to them. But the 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 dukkha, it really is, and what Lumpur is pointing to here, the dukkha is feeling it shouldn't be this way. Something's gone dreadfully wrong that my eyesight is going, or something's gone dreadfully wrong that I'm not so strong and clear-minded as I used to be. I can't remember where I left my shoes. It's like, well, nothing's gone wrong. It's like, you know, if you're 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, stuff de- degenerates, you know. It's not that every child that's born is guaranteed to be uh, fully healthy and grow up. Stati- just look at the statistics. <laughs> look at the natural world. It's, it doesn't work that way. Some uh, some people who are born, they die as soon as they've appeared. Some live a few weeks, some a few months, some a few years, some decades and decades. There's a normal, what they call a normal distribution. There's a bell curve of, of different uh, lifespans. That's That's nature. It's nothing personal. So we're going to be somewhere on the bell curve, and it can be that you know, our our lifespan is is a, you know, very short, or, or it's medium, or it's it's very very long. It's just part of the law of nature. So this is completely non-personal. It's nothing to do with any personal action whatsoever. It's just part of the the, the natural reality of things, the law of the laws of, of biology. So I find I have to explain that, <laughs> talk that th- people through that over and over and over again, because it's such a strong instinct. They think, oh, something's wrong. It shouldn't be this way. This isn't fair. What have I done to deserve this? Or why is this happening to to her or to him? It's it's uh, it's uh, it's out of order. The universe is out of balance. That this is happening, and even though it can seem kind of blunt or cruel, like, well, no, <laughs> it's, not, it's not that something's gone wrong. It's just. You're a you're a biological entity. You you were born. You have a body. And as I also often say to people, I studied physiology in university many years ago. And at the end, at the end of three years of studying physiology, I came to the conclusion that the human body can't work. It's too complicated. This is just in all, you know, three years of an undergraduate degree. It was just so outrageously complex. There's so many things like hundreds of millions of chemical reactions have to work correctly every second. There's just no way that it should hold together. It's a, a flat-out miracle that any of us can can even open our eyes. Can standing, you know, like a vertical spine, walking, is is a miracle. You might not realize it, but <laughs> the human foot is an incredible device, and then. Our knees, you might you might bemoan your knees in the meditation hall, thinking, oh, you're, you know, but they are amazing. To have a, a body that weighs, you know, 100 pounds, 150, 200 pounds, that, that's, uh, that's upright, that can move around on these two wobbly sticks, is incredible that it doesn't fall over all the time. <laughs> and that the sticks can bend and uh, and carry the body around. And, um, and they're, they're not always snapping in the middle. You know, you may think, well, you don't know my knees, <laughs> but it is a fairly new evolutionary device. The vertical spine in the mammal is a is a very new invention, just a million years old or so. So it's the, the nature is still working out the, the the wrinkles. Maybe in a million years' time, we'll have knees that are totally painless and flexible, extra degree of rotation. So meditators' genes have filtered into the mix, and we have totally flexible knees. 
But yeah, it, it's uh, it's an absolute to me. It's uh, uh, literally I, I I just couldn't believe. It. I thought, how does this thing work? I, I come out of one, of a, a lecture and sort of walk down the street and think, how how can we do this? Just even even contract one muscle, an ordinary muscle is it, it takes a, a whole string of about a dozen or fifteen different chemical reactions. Uh, and the most extraordinary kind of spiraling movements between these macromolecules. And we walk, and people pole vault, you know, <laughs> ride horses, you know, it's totally amazing. So, it's, and then with that, that sort of perception in mind, it's like it's hardly surprising that the thing breaks down occasionally. Things go wrong, or bits don't work. Well, you know, you've got so many billions of things that need to be working for it to function properly. It's hardly a surprise that, that some of it just doesn't operate uh, in a predictable or, or desirable way and it's, it's totally unsurprising that it breaks down because you know, how could it not so this uh, I feel is a very useful area to to reflect on particularly when you're you're thinking oh why is this happening to me or this is unfair or everybody else just doesn't have a pain in their back like me or <laughs> oh but you don't know my knees Ajahn just to to have that in mind that nothing's going wrong <laughs> this is just the Bija Niyama Speaking of glasses. <laughs> so this, um, then Lumpur giving us account of him saying, uh, <clears throat> this was, um, I, I guess, in 1982, and he had, uh, the previous year, 1981, he'd been on this long trip to Thailand and then Australia, New Zealand, and all around the world. And, um, and so this was sort of in the wake of that. Hello, goodbye, I'll be back again. <laughs> and then finally he'd made a commitment to go back to Australia, back to New Zealand, back to Thailand, and back, there, yeah, back to the States, everywhere else. And uh, <clears throat> so after a number of years, he got fed up with doing this. And as some of you might know, he started saying, he started trying to say goodbye forever. Because he felt that was more sort of dharmically accurate to, to, um, to be saying goodbye forever because you, you never know that you're gonna whether you're gonna meet again or not and uh, <clears throat> so he thought well that's, that's it, to say I'll, I'll see you again that's really uh, you know, he could feel Ajahn Chah sort of looking over his shoulder and going nah, you're not sure it's not a sure thing Sumedho you know, my nair my nair it's not sure so <clears throat> so instead of saying I'll see you again or, or uh, 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 I look forward to seeing you next year or, or um, I'll see you next week he started to say goodbye forever because he felt that was a more sort of dharmically accurate way of speaking. But of course, again, the sort of superstitious projection that then people would assume that he was able to you know, read the future and that he knew that something something was going to happen, that you know he was going to die or he was subtly predicting that they were going to have a heart attack or have a car crash or that they'd never see each other again. And say, oh, don't say that, Lumpur. Don't say that. No, please. <laughs> don't say and so then he he had to do so much sort of repairing uh, with people who were freaking out and saying, "Are you sure? Do you really mean it, Lumpur? No, no, we we will see each other again, won't we?" He's like, yes, 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 yes. So <clears throat> he uh, he gave up saying goodbye forever after a while, but for a, for a year or two, he used to say that as a matter of course. Then uh, so <clears throat> so in this, I, I hope you get the, the theme about <coughs> attachment to happiness and unhappiness. Another way of talking about it that Ajahn Buddhadasa <coughs> would use, uh, he would say that in Buddhism there's really two kinds of happiness. And that the, is the happiness of getting what you want, and that's the, the happiness that, that uh, Lumpur is, is talking about here. 
and uh, the happiness of, of not wanting anything. As, uh, as Sir Arjun Buddha Dasa would say, yeah, this is what we mean by Nibbana. He said, we, you know, it's called the highest happiness. There is places in the suttas where the Buddha calls it, you know, has that, uses that kind of terminology and says, you know, that it's, uh, that, um, Nibbana is the highest happiness. It's, it's not really this, uh, the, uh, a happiness as we tend to think of it in a day to day, in a day to day way. But it's, Yes, using conventional speech, we can say it's the highest kind of happiness. But he says it's a very, it's a very different kind. So that's an also, also a helpful distinction to make. That the the kind of coarse happiness that we like to attach to is the happiness of getting what we want, of having things that are pleasant around us, like being, uh, uh, say, surrounded by people that we like, by having you know, food that we find delicious, um, pleasant sounds to hear, an absence of things that are abrasive or difficult, um, the happiness of getting what we want. Um, but the the other kind, uh, the happiness of not wanting anything, is a far more subtle quality. And as, as again, as Lumpur points out there, you know, Nibbana is not a, a nothingness, it's not a, a, an annihilation, but it's just, in a way it's a fundamental contentment it's a way of recognizing the the fullness of heart. Like if you recognize that the nature, the fundamental nature of your heart is dhamma, that that's that there's nothing missing from that. There's no um, <clears throat> there's no quality that's absent from that. So that there's nothing to to get. Like what could you add to the dhamma? What could you what could you take away? There's nothing to add, nothing to take away. It's it's perfect and complete just as it is. So that. That kind of uh, uh, happiness of not wanting anything—it's not just a, a sort of blanking out or just sort of <laughs> taking out the battery and shutting down. It's a—it's uh, an utter contentment. So there, is, and this is why the the Buddha said the, the, this is the highest kind of happiness. But it's a um, yeah, it's in a way it's also beyond happiness as we we think of it in in worldly terms. There's a a, a very a unique and interesting sutta called the Magandhya Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, sutta number 75. And Magandhya is a, a sensualist. He's a, a worldly guy. He comes across as a successful, um, fairly wealthy person. And he's uh, he's having a, a conversation with the Buddha. And, and he can't he can't get his mind around this idea of, of giving up sensual pleasure. He says, well, how can this be good? I mean, we we all we're human beings. We love happiness. We want we want to be happy. Uh, how can giving up sense pleasure or not pursuing sense pleasure? How can that be? Um, how can uh, how can that constitute uh, any kind of happiness? How can you be happy if you if you if you're not uh, following those um, th- things that are attractive to the senses that are appealing and delightful to our, our senses? And then the Buddha asks him, so Magandhya, so if, um, if you were a Deva Raja, you were like a, a celestial prince up in the Tavatinsa heaven, and that you were able to live in the Nandana Grove, it's kind of a beautiful celestial uh, park, and you're surrounded by you know, glorious uh, devatas of, uh, that were attractive and beautiful uh, to you, and they were you know, all there for your company and your pleasure and um, so, if you were able to to be a Deva Raja living in the Nandana Grove in this kind of Id- uh, idyllic sort of paradisical situation, 
Yeah, if you if you're able to live like that, would you be interested in the worldly pleasures that you enjoy so much as a human being? He said, "Well, no, not at all. It wouldn't be interesting if I had the the life of a Deva Raja in the Nandana Grove. That the pleasures of the human realm would be totally uninteresting to me. They'd be kind of coarse and vulgar and you know just boring. Wouldn't wouldn't be uh, interesting at all." And the the Buddha said, "Well, just <laughs> in exactly the same way, Magandhya, the the Tathagata or the you know an enlightened person." enlightened being they are they know a pleasure that is as far beyond the pleasures of the tavatinsa heaven as the, the the pleasures of the tavatinsa heaven are beyond the human realm so it's not because uh, uh the tathagata condemns sense pleasure in and of itself but you know, the enlightened being is simply uninterested in that kind of pleasure because they know of a pleasure which is far beyond that far more comprehensive far more sublime and, and complete. Therefore, they're not interested in, in, in worldly pleasure. So, therefore, uh, they they let go of it. Their, their attention is not called by that. They're they're not drawn by that. So that's a, a helpful teaching to reflect on. That and that this is a, the, the happiness of of nibbana is the happiness of of not wanting anything. The happiness that comes from a total contentment and a, a recognition of our own uh, completeness, or what is called puna in Pali or purna in Sanskrit, the quality of fullness or wholeness. So then the last couple of things to say. Not, not that I'm aware of. In the, no. says that there's the um, the 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 nature of the mind is radiant, but he doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't need to talk about happiness. Yeah, pabasara. So uh, let's see. Then. Uh, Oh yeah. Also, when he says nibbana means um, uh, getting away from the jungle, um, that's uh, one of the the um, etymologies of the word nibbana. Uh, the the word vanna is the word for forest or jungle, and so um, one of the the uh, long time um, supporters and uh, students of, of Lumpur Sumedho, um, uh, who'd been studying Pali scriptures for years and years, it was her her feeling. Her opinion was that that nibbana, the word nibbana, didn't so much come from the word for coolness. It came from the uh, from the root of vanna, and vanna or nirvana was away from the jungle. So, like, the word for monkey is vanara, and the, uh, and the uh, the forest is is vanna. Probably similar in Sinhalese. Vanara is monkey. There you go. That was a guess. <laughs> so. Uh, Near, uh, near, uh, the word nibbana coming from away from the coming from the words meaning away from the from the jungle. So that's where that terminology comes from. Also, he makes this distinction again of the the mind and conditions of mind, and that was um, the the same um, thing that was communicated by um, Ajahn Man. It had a very big effect on Ajahn Chah when um, he was with Ajahn Man for the, the three days that he spent in his company. <clears throat> and that uh, 
that had a very powerful effect on Ajahn Chah's practice where Ajahn Man explained that you know, the mind and the conditions of mind are separate. They're, they're, they're not the same thing and that they use this, this analogy of oil and water. And that, uh, and as Lung Po points out here, the conditions of mind can be uh, agitated, confusing, beautiful, ugly, coarse or fine, but um, the, like the space in the room. And it's a, I guess this is a helpful analogy. It says that whether there's you know, silence and quietness uh, here, people sitting in, in, a, in a peaceful, quiet way, or there's a whole lot of confusion and activity, or there's nobody in here at all, the space remains as the space. And so that uh, that... Um, that space of the mind then being a, um, or that, that quality of mind being able to contain and to know all things, that, that uh, in, in essence with Vipassana meditation, we're allowing those, those two to separate out from each other so that the quality of, of knowing uh, and the objects of knowing are, are seen uh, as intrinsically separate and, and unentangled with each other. And then the, the less entangled that they are, then the more... Uh, accommodating the the more uh, say the the space can receive and and, uh, and can uh, say encompass you know all things that arise within it and allow those things to to uh, harmonize with each other. So also maybe the, the last thing to say is that uh, I was with a a, um, a Tibetan Lama who's a friend of ours and uh, we were talking about the analogy of of space uh, uh, in the mind. He said space is both the best simile and the worst <laughs> I thought it was an interesting perspective that uh, he said it's the best simile because because of the the reasons that uh, Lumpur mentions here that you know it's like everything can be contained within it and regardless of what appears within the space the space remains but it's also he said it's the worst because space is not conscious and mind is conscious <laughs> so that's uh, a uh, um, uh, also an interesting way to reflect on it that um yeah, it's a, space is a really good analogy in, in one respect, but the fact that the mind is is awake and conscious and, and knows that uh, uh, that brings a, a completely different dynamic into it as well. So, like all analogies, the analogy of space, the space in the room is is partially accurate, and uh, but the, the the fact that the mind is a is a knowing space is very very different from the space in this room, which would. It's not a, 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 it's not a space that knows, whereas the mind, uh, the space of the mind is a is a knowing space, and so that's categorically different in that way. Um. <laughs> it's uh, um, it was let's see cognizant cognizant in nature um, uh, unconfined in capacity and radiant in quality something like that so like in in the um, um, the when the Buddha's teaching about the um, the the vinya the uh, the uh, vinyana uh, the anidasana vinyana the signless concentration or the formless con- uh, formless consciousness the an- anidasana vinyana vinyanang anidasanang anantang sabato pabang the consciousness which is limitless um, uh, 
is uh, formless, is in invisible, is limitless and radiant in all directions. No, no, not in that. But it's that's uh, that when Lumpur Sumedha talks about consciousness, and it's often that kind of consciousness he's referring to, that sort of transcendent consciousness. So that's very similar to what they use in the in uh, in the Dzogchen teachings, the, the the qualities of mind that are uh, fundamental qualities of mind of of the uh, mind's true nature. So, any other questions, comments, reflections? It was a long reading today. Yes, Nevin. Listening to the talk, um, I was thinking it was two, the um, most inspiring thing I've ever heard Arjun Samadhi say was um, Samsara can never be a lotus, but you can be a lotus in Samsara. You know, this vision of coming out, but your feet are still stuck in all the muck and dirt life. Like you can be this, you know, bundle with this image of a lotus, but also Tikna Khan, because, you know, for the Western mind, um, it would be very easy to think then, okay, if I renounce things and I also um, uh, don't attach, then I'm there, I'm going to be this lotus. But Tikna Khan said, and I remember it was one of the subjects you first spoke of when you came here, I thought, it's the subject that's stuck that you've all spoke about, that you spoke about that. I've never heard anybody else speak about that. He speaks about um, of the modern phenomena of the um, hungry growth, the, the, uh, the um, up that we have to develop as a human. So, in a lot of times we say, well, the hungry spirit they use is like greed. You've got this large stomach and a small neck, so you can't give out food. But he takes it to another level when he starts talking about it can also be in um, the Western world that we crave love, we crave kindness, we crave affection, but we can't let it in. So we reject even that. So, you know, the middle way, you must, I suppose, is finding that acceptance to allow the good in as well. Mm, sure, yes. Yeah. And, you know, I remember when you spoke the first time you said about how the Buddha said we have to practice to become fully human, the new star. I'm the Yes, it's sometimes it's letting ourselves be be loved is very difficult, especially for the English. <laughs> By cats and dogs, it's all right, but other other humans, it's very very tricky. You know, and the southern the sort of southern, home counties English are the worst. You know, got it uh, even more more bad than uh, many of the others, but uh, you can do it. <laughs> Because it's a, it's a kind of conceit not, uh, that, uh, that that we we feel we have to protect ourselves or armor ourselves in that way, and to uh, let ourselves be be vulnerable or let our, let ourselves be uh, be loved rather than sort of fending it off and not not letting anyone close. Not easy to do. You writing a note? And 
beautiful names. So I make it how many new names. This is producing the records. Sometimes it's good to make like a printing of the in the mind of the beautiful moments, you know. So I get this in my memory for tomorrow. Boom! Because I made a problem as well. It's not only what I remember. It's a problem. It's another distinguishing from the moment. Sorry about No, I just was curious. You seem to be uh, writing on an invisible notepad. To get more sensational moment. <laughs> but uh, even though that, that's that's well well in, intentioned and maybe that works for you, it's also that um, one of the ways that we we uh, um, in a sense um, fail to to experience happiness is that we're trying to when we try to keep it, trying to capture the moment, and uh, the. Um, Sometimes, often it's that the more precious and the more, more beautiful, the more perfect something is, the more desperate we are to keep it and the less we are able to actually experience it. And that uh, it is, takes a lot of skill to just let ourselves fully delight in something in the present and not try to keep it, not try to own it. Like in the poem of William Blake, he says, uh, he uses the expression, uh, kiss it, uh, kissing the joy as it flies. Kissing the joy as it flies, like a bird, you know. You, sort of, you kiss it as it goes by, rather than oh, oh nice bird. Oh, yeah. oh sorry, bird. <laughs> but you, you kind of grab the joy. Says, he who binds himself to a joy doth the winged life destroy. He that that uh, kisseth kisseth the, uh, a joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So that that. Readiness to to let go, even when when we are uh, ready to let go, and not trying to hold or keep or, or uh, own uh, something, then we we really enjoy it. But it's also it's 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 uh, fleeting, changeable quality is part of that. So it's interesting being in Japan a few years ago with with Lumpur Sumedho because the in Japanese culture they have a whole um, like a, there's a huge <laughs> kind of devotion to cherry blossom and cherry is a huge thing in the springtime the cherry blossom going to visit cherry orchards and particular trees like even trees have their own names and people go and visit certain trees because the, the blossom is particularly wonderful and that the blossom is perfect just for moments and so but they're very fleeting the the very uh uh, impossibility of keeping the bo- the blossom at its peak is what makes uh, the, the the people devoted to it. It's this kind of um, the the fact that you can't own it, you can't hold it, you can't keep it. That's uh, uh, something that they they revere. That sort of transiency of it. That's what makes it beautiful. You can't keep it. Okay. The uh, the three qualities in Dzogchen were 
empty in essence, uh, cognizant in nature, unconfined in capacity. Empty, cognizant, unconfined. Was it? I was forgetting the first one was evading me, but that was it. Annamayang dhammagatha sadhukarang dadama se sadhu sadhu sadhu